and welcome back to the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you from the maintenance barn at Quail Chase, and this is Season 3, Episode 10. Today's episode puts a bit of a spotlight on the turf side of the golf course industry. My guest is Brian Laurent. His journey in golf has taken him from collegiate golfer to running multiple Ohio sections of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America before launching his newest venture, the Superintendent Network. He is also, perhaps most importantly, the caretaker of my favorite putting course that I've never visited, the Twisted Paul Putting Club in suburban Columbus, Ohio. As an executive within the industry, Brian sits at the intersection of the pulse of his members, the trends and threats to the golf and turf industries, the vendors, and the regulators and government bodies that can have a profound impact on the industry as 2020 and 2021 have demonstrated. Before I awkwardly, inadvertently insult Brian before settling into our conversation, remember that you're invited to interact with this show on Twitter at BlindShotsPod, as well as on Instagram. We don't set out to stir the pot and rile people up around here, but if you like or dislike something you hear, let me know. Also, a reminder that the Blind Shots podcast is sponsored by me, David Hill. In addition to playing, talking, and writing about golf, I'm a licensed Kentucky Realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I work with homeowners buying and selling their homes and also work with investors and businesses on their commercial property needs here in central Kentucky. You can find my contact information at davidhill.rhr.com. If you've got a real estate question, if you want to know what a realtor can do for you, reach out and we can start a conversation. I'll have a little time. I think I've just got one closing between now and the end of the year. So reach out to me if there's something that's on your mind. And with that, here's Brian Laurent from the Superintendent Network. into your story a little bit this morning brian you found your way to columbus and ohio state via golf is that correct tell me a little bit about that part of your journey yeah so grew up was born in indiana um dad became a golf course superintendent a little later in life um and so i kind of bounced around with the family uh ended up growing up most of my life in eastern pa um, you know, and just kind of made the trip home to Indiana every year, a couple times a year and drove right through Columbus, never really gave it much thought until, you know, college selection time was, was upon us. And, um, my folks made me apply to three, at least three colleges. Um, I wanted Purdue was Purdue was my number one. I wanted to go to Purdue. I did early entrance, you know, early application, all that, um, applied to Michigan state and applied to Ohio state. And Purdue was just kind of dragging their feet, didn't let me, you know, wouldn't give me an answer, wouldn't give me an answer. And finally um, took a tour of, of Ohio State's campus, talked to the golf coach and um, just immediately, once they accepted me, said, all right, that's where I'm going to go. Um, I wanted to try and walk on to the golf team, such, you know, obviously tremendous history here for, uh, for the college golf team. And um, and so that's what I did. Enrolled at, at Ohio State, walked onto the golf team, and and the rest is kind of history. So it now, was, uh, was a fun journey. Now, for listeners, you're roughly my age, I take it. So this would have been the late '90s. Do you think that that journey ends? It looks a little bit different today. Oh God, I could never <laughs> get into Ohio State now. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, hundred percent. It's different. So I don't know what it would have been now. Well, you walked on, but I guess at that point, you, by walking on, or when did you know that the PGA Tour playing for a living wasn't in your future? Uh, before I went to college. Okay. I was I was never that good. I was a basketball guy. 
Um, I, I played basketball and spent hours and hours on the basketball court in my driveway. Um, and so I wanted to go play college basketball somewhere. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, I, I broke my back. Um, and so I, doctors basically said, shouldn't really be doing contact sports anymore. And basketball was a seven, you know, it used to be a contact sport back when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so basketball was out. Um, I obviously, with my dad being a superintendent, I had always played golf. Um, but because dad was so into it, I didn't really think it was all that cool. Um, but I watched the 95 Ryder cup and saw that, man, you know, you can actually compete. Um, it's competitive, there's energy and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I started focusing on golf after that, you know, I was, I was able to play golf. Um, but I never, my average in high school, my senior year was probably 77, you know, so I wasn't, you know, I didn't even get it. I got maybe two letters from other universities. They're all, you know, D three schools. Hey, you know, come here and play, play basketball and golf for us, that kind of stuff. And, um, I wanted to go to some, I wanted to go somewhere bigger. I wanted to try and, and dedicate the time to take, to, to improve. And so that's what I did the summer after my, my senior year in high school, um, I'd go to work until, you know, noon or something. And then I'd just go hit balls and, and play. So, and then, uh, when it was time for tryouts at Ohio state, I, you know, I think I averaged about 71, 72, um, for, nice. for tryouts and was, was able to, was able to make the team as usually the, you know, 10th to 12th man, um, and just be a part of the team, which was, which was a blast. So I knew, I knew very early on, I wasn't going to be playing golf for a living, but I, you know, I wanted to be involved and I, you know, I just wanted to be around the game because it's, it's obviously a game that, uh, that you and I both love. We certainly have that understanding. We do now with a, a family connection to the turf side of the course, you were playing at Ohio state. I assume you traveled some with the team. You've got some really exquisite golf courses in the big 10 was there one tournament that you went to or one place that you kind of was a wow moment like oh look at this that just kind of opened your eyes on on golf in this part of the country i did not travel with the team okay. um so as the walk on and 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 as my friends around here um like to kind of joke i was i was basically the bobby boucher of the team i was the <laughs> water boy I did a whole lot of practicing, not a whole lot of traveling or playing in tournaments. Um, so I never, I, I was never able to, to travel around the big 10 courses and see all those. Um, but obviously here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, we were very fortunate to, to be able to play some of the, some of the courses in this area. So, you know, when, when the team was traveling, coach would, would set us up on, you know, obviously our home course Scarlet is, is no slouch. It's a fantastic golf course. Uh, but we, you know, we get set up on at Double Eagle at Mirfield Village, um, the golf club, Sciota, you name. It. I mean, we 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 were able to, to go and, and periodically play some of uh, some of these great golf courses here in Ohio. Well, that's yeah, right there in Central Ohio. I'm jealous because I, I've played one of those. <laughs> I've played one of those that you named, and it was an incredible experience. Um, yeah, which one did you play? I was lucky enough um, through a connection, got to play Mirfield Village uh, one fall nice. afternoon a couple of years ago. And I had played Valhalla the year before. And there's, 
I was really struck by the similarities between the two, you know, Jack's hands all over both of them, but just the kind of the similar feel and the way they're draped in amongst the trees and the water and the land movement and everything um, took an equal shellacking from both of them. Uh, but went yeah, in and, yeah. and got the, uh, our host was kind enough. He brought us in we got the milkshake after the round. So it it really couldn't have been better. It was just a, a great day over there. You got the full experience. Got the, got the Beautiful. full experience. Now you have carved out a cool. niche, a, a, a space in golf that is a little, I don't know if you'd say untraditional or what, but you are, you're not a greenskeeper or a turf guy, but you are the greenskeepers guy in central Ohio through. So tell me a little bit about how you ended up with, uh, I guess, involved with Miami Valley, uh, superintendent association, central Ohio, um, and, and kind of how that progression happened. Yeah. So I was, um, I was working a job that I just couldn't, I, I didn't really like a whole lot. Um, I was in sales and I am the absolute worst salesman you'll, you'll ever meet. Um, and I just, I, you know, golf. Now, is now, now hold on. I'm going to stop you there. When someone says that I hold on to my wallet because they say, Oh yeah, I'm the worst salesman. That's usually right when the sale comes. So, <laughs> Yeah. Well, if you ask a lot of the vendors around here, they'll, they'll definitely agree with you because anytime they hear from me, I'm usually asking them for money, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's always an easy sale supporting the superintendents around here. So, so it's, it's definitely not a hard sale. Um, but yeah, no, I was, you know, I was, um, I was doing something I really wasn't enjoying. Um, and, and, you know, again, golf is kind of all I knew. Um, I had always known that I wanted to get into golf in some way, shape or form. Uh, when I graduated college, uh, I went and I was, I was an assistant pro for a little while. Um, and then, uh, helped my dad when he bought the golf course he grew up on in Indiana, I kind of helped him run that for a while. And, um, so it was a smaller town in Northeast Indiana and, um, and I had just gotten married and my wife at the time. Uh, and I were both, you know, from Ohio or well, both went to Ohio state and, you know, just kind of wanted to be in Columbus in the bigger city. So came here and just kind of took a job and did that for a couple of years. And, and, you know, again, just had always found that pull to golf and, um, you know, one thing or one thing led to another and ultimately found a job running, uh, uh the Ohio Turfgrass foundation, which is our state's, you know, overreaching overall umbrella turf turf organization you know providing research and uh and education for you know not just golf course superintendents but lawn care operators uh sports field managers all that kind of stuff so so i was running that um for a few years and then and then some of these other associations um just started coming to me and asking if i could help them um and so you know over the years picked up the the miami valley golf golf course superintendents association was was my first one um, and then Central Ohio superintendents um, came after that. Um, and so, yeah, just just kind of by accident, fell into the association management world and um, started picking up all these, you know, a bunch of different groups and uh, left left the Ohio Turfgrass Foundation in 2019 and started, you know, just because I needed something to do. Um, started the Ohio Superintendent Network, which kind of served as as an umbrella group for for superintendents here in Ohio. 
And, and it's just kind of all evolved. And yeah, I've found this little niche where I do a little bit of a lot and work with a bunch of different groups and, you know, pretty primarily all golf related. Well, they're all golf related. Um, but yeah, I just kind of fell into this niche and, and, and I have embraced every moment of it. I'm what? pretty lucky to do what I do. Keeping it's an interesting way to keep connected to the game. Um, absolutely. Just ask you bluntly. Yeah. How are your guys and girls doing? How are your members doing? We're coming off the heels of the biggest golf boom in a generation in the tightest labor market of our lifetimes. How are you guys doing? They're tired. <laughs> They're definitely tired. You know, it's always been a, it's always been a very demanding profession. Um, and, and, you know, so now with the labor market, the way it is and with rounds, the way they are, um, they're, they're, they're going, you know, double time right now. Um, you know, the, the expectations are, you know, they haven't changed, you know, the expectations are, are, are always high for them to produce a, a, a phenomenal product, no matter what the budget is. Um, and now they have, you know, less time and less people to get it done. Um, you know, some of the top clubs, you know, that you would think are oh, super exclusive place, whatever, you know, they're packed, you know, they're eight to 10 minute tea times starting at seven 30 AM until, till the sun goes down. So, you know, the term mow and go has kind of always been used as a joke to, you know, get in and get out in a hurry and, and avoid play. But that's, you know, that's almost what it is. It seems like these days, you know, that's all they really have the manpower for. And that's really all they have, have the time to do. So, um, it's great. You know, it's great that there's so many people on the golf course and it's, and it's great that golf is getting this boom. Um, you know, I, I've certainly started to hear from guys, um, this summer and fall that their, their budgets are, are starting to see a little bit of an uptick, um, based on, um, you know, just the popularity of the game and clubs being full and waiting lists again and initiation fees and that kind of stuff. at some of the private clubs and, you know, public courses just, you know, can't squeeze people in the tea sheets are so full. So, so they're starting to see some of the benefit of that. It seems like from, from a budget standpoint, but again, you know, it's, it's, it's just challenging and they're having to, they're having to adapt, um, be extremely creative and in, in what they do and, and, you know, really take advantage of, of some of these new and exciting tools that are going to, you know, make their lives a little easier, um, to, to get, you know, two or three jobs done, um, with one person, you know, where they used to have two or three people to do those two or three jobs. So, um, so yeah, long, long winded answer to you that, that they're tired, uh, but, but, you know, they love what they do and they're in this business for a reason for the most part, and, and they're getting a job done and, and, and doing a great job. Yes. As always, Listeners, thank your superintendent or thank a, a member of the maintenance crew when you see him on the course, if you happen to catch one during daylight hours. Um, Brian, one thing Absolutely. you mentioned there, some of the, the tools and, you know, technology is constantly evolving, especially on the equipment side, where I think we're seeing a lot of innovation there. Is that something that your associations and the, the network, is there a, a member education aspect to what you do? Or is it just kind of getting the, the right people in front of the other right people? No, it's, it, it is. I mean, there's certainly education. We provide, we provide seminars and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, um, a lot of what we do is we help create those connections. Um, you know, I, when I started the Ohio superintendent network that I mentioned earlier, it was because I have 
growing up in the industry, I know how important those that professional network and those relationships with other superintendents are and, and with our vendors. Um, it's, it's all about the people. And, and this industry is one of the best at sharing ideas, um, you know, sharing successes, sharing failures. Um, you know, again, that exchange of ideas from peer to peer interaction is really what it's all about. And, and our associations provide, you know, the, the avenue, you know, one of the ways for these people to connect that are, whether it's our monthly golf outings or, or education seminars and stuff like that. Gotcha. Um, is there, are you hearing from your members or is there anything going on in the turf industry that your guys wish the public knew? I mean, you just mentioned kind of the, um, they're doing more with less and it's heading in that direction. Is there a, a common, I don't want to say complaint, but a, a desire or a wish that you're hearing from your guys that, um, you know, the average hack golfer like me should, you know, might want to take into consideration before they, they say anything or pass judgment on, on golf courses these days. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, a couple things there, I would say number one, that, that each facility is unique, you know, and, and I hear one of the, one of the biggest complaints is that, you know, a member at one club uh, is going to talk to their buddy. That's a member at the other club and, you know, Hey, we're doing this or, or they're doing this. Why can't we do this? Or, you know, their greens are this way. Why can't I, you know, so every, every facility and every situation is unique. And there's so much that goes into producing that product on a golf course um, that that your average golfer never really sees, you know, whether it's uh, budget, resources, equipment, uh, growing environments. There's just so much that goes into it um, that that you really can't compare one facility to the next. I mean, hell, even at just one golf course, you can have multiple microclimates that you're going to have to, they're going to have to manage, you know, certain greens or certain holes differently from others um, because of air movement, because of sunlight, you know, um, whatever it may be, what's under the surface. So there, there are just so many variables. Um, you know, your average golfer just tees it up and they, they just see that, you know, the bunkers weren't right this day or the greens are, you know, maybe, a little slower than, than the other one up the street, but, you know, it's not because the superintendent or the staff doesn't want it to be, you know, top, top conditions every day. It's they're limited in what they can do. They're, they're maintaining that plant to make sure it survives through a summer. Um, you know, so, so there's just so many different variables again, um, that I think golfers don't really think about when they go to tee it up. Um, and then the next thing, you know, that I, that I, you know, think I wish more people would know is just, just the, the unbelievable knowledge that these golf course superintendents have. It is, they are the most resourceful. Um, I, you know, I kind of compare them to like, you know, MacGyver, if you watch, remember that old show MacGyver oh, yeah. where he could, you know, he could make anything out of a roll of duct tape. That's what golf course superintendents are, man. I mean, they, if there's a problem, I would call a golf course superintendent because they're always going to figure out a way to, to get something done. They are, they're, they're scientists, they're artists, they're accountants, you know, you name it, they have to do yeah, shade tree mechanic. so many. Different, yeah. You name it. I mean, there's, they just, they've got such a, a vast knowledge 
Um, and I just, and I just wish more people would understand that. I wish more young people would understand that, that there's, there are great career opportunities in the industry that, that are, you know, rewarding, not just from, um, you know, someone's passion for the game and being able to be around the game, but, you know, can be very financially rewarding as well. We're, we're seeing salaries continuing to increase. Um, and there's, there's more of a demand on quality, uh, assistant superintendents right now than there's ever been. Um, you know, I just spoke to, um, one of the OSU ATI turf club, uh, up in Worcester, Ohio, their two-year program, I went and spoke to their students, you know, these kids can write their ticket right now. You know, it's, it's, it's never been this way. I've never seen it this way. You know, there, there are high paying quality assistant positions all over the country. And if a kid wants to go and they want to be on the West coast, or if they want to be on long Island or wherever it is, they can pretty much write their ticket these days. Cause you know, these high end clubs that are putting assistant positions out there, they're getting two or three applicants where they used to get 30 to 50. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, you know, I just I, w- I wish more more young people or uh, or people in general um, would would see it as a great opportunity for for a, a rewarding career. Is it an aging industry? I hadn't thought about that. Are, are you crank? Are there are enough people coming through with the skills out of universities and colleges or, or training programs? Or is this an are we going to hit some kind of some kind of bump? Hopefully not a cliff in ten years, fifteen years, or sooner. Yeah, there, there's a there's a big shortage. You know, enrollment across the country at turf programs is is dwindling significantly. Um, you know, I think heck, I think UK program may maybe just shut their doors. Don't I, they did? I guess I, I I would say don't quote me on that, but I guess it's on it's on radio, so it's going to be quoted. But you know, we're seeing we're seeing turf programs um, shut down across the country um, because of you know whether it's lack of interest or funding, whatever it may be. So yeah, we are, you know, we're, we're kind of already there. We're, we're, we're hitting a point where there are not enough bodies and enough trained individuals to fill the roles that are, that are out there. You know, if you go on to TurfNet or GCSAA, where there are job postings for, for superintendents and assistance positions, you'll find hundreds, oh, wow. you'll find hundreds of, of positions. I think I was on the other day. Um, there were 240 some assistant positions and, and assistant and training positions open. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're there. There's, there's a shortage of, of general labor and skilled labor. Um, so it's, you know, these guys are going to, they're, they're faced with challenges. And, and the next thing that's coming our way is we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of guys that are in that 50 to 50 to 60 range that are, that are nearing and starting to think about retirement. Uh, so when we're already struggling to find assistance, um, once some of these assistants or once these once these head superintendents start retiring and some of these assistants move up to fill those spots, you know, who's who's there? Where's that pipeline to fill what's coming down the road? So, uh, yeah, yeah, the amount of institutional knowledge that walks out the door after a long time super retires. I mean, that's unless you oh, had yeah. unless he's been training an assistant to take over for a while. That's that's a scary proposition for a club i would think yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it is you know and especially you get into some of these places that you know are managing a certain strain of poa or whatever and the guy's been there for 30 years and he's got them dialed in um, but now we are I, I am starting to see more and more um, guys that that are at that level that have been at a club for you know 20 30 years they they're 
they're starting to do a, a pretty good job of of bringing a new guy along you know whether it's the experienced superintendent taking on more of a director's title and then promoting their lead assistant to to a superintendent role um, in hopes of you know the 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 board and the committee um, you know keeping this person on board um, definitely starting to see more and more of that gotcha one um you mentioned some of the programs not or shutting down. I know, yeah, UK is turf grass, which we're kind of an interesting, we had an interesting program history because of the connection to the equine industry. Like we, mm-hmm. I mean, we have a strong golf community here in Kentucky, but the turf grass, um, the money was made feeding the cows and feeding the horses. That was sure. just to be frank. Um, through the the network or the associations that you're involved in, do you guys do any advocacy on behalf of the industry with, with state or local governments? I know last year kind of shown a big bright spotlight on that, you know, for owners, for supers, when courses were shut down, when we didn't know what was happening and there were closures and then reopenings. And it was kind of, um, kind of a patchwork of, of rules and regulations. Um, so, but do you guys do any advocacy on, through the network or your associations. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh yeah. Yeah, we do. We do a ton of it. Okay. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the, the major benefits um, of the association as well as having, having that voice at the state house and, and, and with government here um, on the state national and, and local level as much as possible. Um, GCSAA does a phenomenal job of advocacy and, um, and, and speaking on behalf of superintendents interests and golf golf's interests really, um, at the, uh, at the Capitol in DC. Um, but yeah, here locally, um, absolutely. We are, um, we're involved with, with an organization, um, called OPAR. Um, it is the Ohio professional applicators for responsible regulation. It's a mouthful. Um, but yeah, I mean, they are, um, they're essentially the lobbyists for our industry, um, but it's also a coalition with with big ag, with structural pest management, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, we're we're heavily involved with um, with with the policymakers here in the state of Ohio. Uh, it's one of those things that it's really difficult to uh, to show your members what's being done. You know, if there's not a problem. Uh, they don't see all the all the legwork on the back end to maintain those relationships and um, and you know to keep kind of all the tools in their toolbox, so to say. But um, un- unfortunately, um, Belinda Jones used to be our lobbyist for for a very long time with OPAR, and she just passed away unexpectedly in February. And so we've kind of gone through the process of finding you know a new a new lobbyist, and we've got that done. But you know, I can't tell you how many times over the last ten years where I'll talk to, I had conversations with Belinda and she'd say representative such and such reached out to me and told me about this potential legislation or asked me questions based on water quality and fertilizer use or pesticide use and, you know, answered the questions um, immediately and and it just kind of went away. So, you know, those are the things that our members don't really see um, that we're doing behind the scenes to to help them. Last year during COVID was probably I probably aged ten years just in three days with with that whole deal. I mean, it was we started working early. Um, you know, I kind of kind of gathered 
all of our um, allied golf associations together. So we have five superintendent chapters in the state, uh, got them together, got our, our amateur golf associations together, our owners group together, uh, club managers, whatever. So all of these groups, we came together and we well, sent a letter to the governor and talked about the benefits of being outdoors and open space and all that. And I was, I was talking to the governor's office probably two or three times a day, um, for, for about a week straight and trying to make sense of what was what, and, um, ultimately worked out. I think we only shut down for a day or two, um, which was nice, but That's man, impressive. That, was, that was, that was crazy, man. That was, that was a, that was a crazy week. I, you know, they shut down, I don't remember what our statewide policy was. I know the city of Lexington shut theirs down for all of April, which was just a killer because yeah. that's, that's <clears throat> mowing season. Yeah. That's applicate. I mean, people were volunteering to kind of on a skeleton crew, keep at least keep mowing the grass, but that was, I mean, yeah. they were just giant green spaces. There were some pirates out there playing golf, which, you know, oh yeah, at least they were in theory making use of the course or, or keeping it up as they went. But that was a, kind of a scary time. Um, one thing, you know, mentioning. Oh, well, no, like, no, I was just gonna say, I mean, it's like, uh, th that was one of the hard parts too, was that, you know, here in Ohio, we have 80 some health, uh, health districts. And so even though the state said something, each health district or health department kind of had their own set of rules and they interpreted the, the laws differently. And so, you know, I was getting calls from county over in Western Ohio that said, well, no, they're not letting us open. So we have to go to that county and talk to them. And, you know, then another county would call and say, well, they're shutting us down too, or we can't do this. So that, you know, so it was just, it was, it was nuts. Just, you know, they, they made the laws, the regulations so vague that they left it all to an interpretation and every single district in interpreted the rules as differently. So we're was, I, here in Kentucky, we've got 120 counties. Oh, each, 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 you know, each county executive is a prince or king or queen of their, their own little fiefdom. So yes, I, I, I know exactly, yeah, uh, exactly what you're into there. Oh. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, from your members, just from your perspective, have being a player and, and being a director with, with these associations, is it a fundamentally different job for your members that work at private clubs versus the ones that work in public golf or even work for municipal golf? Um, it, it just seems like that's one of my little pet hobbies is, is I'm a gypsy. I, I don't belong to a golf club. I play, I play all over. I, I'm loyal to the game. Um, yeah. But it just seems like the, the attitudes uh, can be so different of the golfers. And I, I was curious if you've, if you're, there's any feedback from your members that kind of a divide between the guys that are working for a committee or a private owner at a club versus someone that's, you know, working for a town council or mayor or, or any of that. Yeah, there, there certainly are some, some differences, you know, you, you get into some of um, those circumstances, like you mentioned where, you know, maybe city or municipally owned and um, you know, there's a lot more red tape when it comes to, whether it's purchasing decisions, hiring practices, that kind of stuff. Um, but, at the, but at the end of the day, um, you know, one of the things that I always find interesting is when I talk to a superintendent, um, you know, usually they come to the realization that as, as, 
as invested as they are in the, in the golf course, most of them understand it's not their golf course. You know, it is the member's golf course. It is the owner's golf course. It's whoever's golf course. So I think at the end of the day, while there may be some, some differences and, you know, slight differences in, you know, the way it's governed or who they're talking to and that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, most of these superintendents are reporting to somebody, um, you know, they're, they're being given direction from somebody. Um, and, and their job is to do the best with what they have uh, to provide a quality product. Um, and so, you know, one of the, one of the funny things, you know, for me growing up was I, you know, my dad being a superintendent at a private club, seeing the difference in expectations from players and, and you would think that the expectations at a, you know, top 100 facility where my dad was at for, for a long time would be way higher than at a public golf course. And I've just found the golfers expectations like we kind of talked about earlier, they, they just don't change. You know, someone pays, doesn't matter if they're paying $25 to go play, you know, their lo local public golf course, or they're playing, paying, you know, $650 to go play this top public or private course. Mm -hmm. They, they all have similar expectations. They expect a perfect golf course. Um, so, you know, I think at, at the end of the day, from a superintendent standpoint, I really don't see a, a huge difference. There's, there's always pressure on them to perform, um, you know, and again, they're, they're typically reporting to somebody. You know, now you, you obviously throw in your tournaments and some of those things. And yeah, there's 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 a certainly a, a different expectation and, and um, you know, difference in, in running some of those facilities. But um, but again, I getting long winded on you here today, Dave. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think over, overall in general, um, there's not a ton of difference other than, you know, what they have to work with and and you know, if, if it's public access, private, doesn't matter, you know, their, their job stays the same. They have a certain number of acres to maintain and they go do it. One quit apologizing. The more you talk, the better the show is. They are, yeah. everybody. The uh, I tend to ramble. So I just don't want to get myself in trouble and say all, something I shouldn't. So. All 12 people that listen to this all know what I think. They're interested in what you have to think today. Yeah. 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 I doubt um, that. <laughs> the, um, you, know, you mentioned tournaments and things. One of the, the great treats I had this year was I got to go and do a, a preview round at Kenwood in Cincinnati suburbs. I don't know if you're familiar with that on the. Yeah. Uh, yeah cool. And they have they have landed. Uh, they I think announced last month they've landed uh, the Queen City Classic. They're bringing the LPGA um, to Cincinnati. Now, that was a, a renovation course, a renovation that um, it was a Fry Stratka, but they they did a lot of the work in house with some of the turf is that um, through the, the superintendents network, do you guys have, I guess, resources for your members that are getting into, I guess that speak to capital investment other than just from your vendors, you know, uh, somebody selling irrigation or, or chemicals, is that part of the conversation of what you guys do or is that so course specific that the, the network really doesn't deal with that other than just maybe advice or, or hooking people up together. Yeah. I mean, I don't really get involved on a case by case basis. I mean, again, that, that, that goes back to the relationship side of things. And, and, you know, if someone's getting ready to do a project, they're going to start asking around, you know, they're going to call their network of peers and they're going to get advice on 
what was your experience with, with this team? You know, what's your experience with, um, you, you know, this product or whatever it may be. Um, so is that, does that kind of answer your question there, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's uh, the, the network, you know, the association itself doesn't really get too involved with, with making specific recommendations on, on certain things, you know, we'll take a stance on policy and, and, and those types of things. But at the end of the day, if a golf course is getting ready to, to, you know, blow up and redo all that kind of stuff, we'll certainly help. We'll help connect people as needed, but it's going to, that's going to boil down to, you know, that individual golf courses committee and, and their superintendent making the right decisions for their own property. Gotcha. Where is the, the superintendent? network headed what's in the what do you have in the pipeline what is what is that if you had your choice what is that organization going to look like in a couple of years oh man how much time do you have right now dave i'll give you uh, i'll give you you 12 minutes on this (laughs) so so um things are changing right now things are evolving um i mentioned before we have five superintendent chapters in the state of ohio um just and just for I'm going to press pause there for everyone that doesn't know there is an omnibus there's a national golf course superintendents association and you've got chap like local chapters of that national organization is that what you're talking about the five exactly okay yep yep we have we have local uh, affiliated chapters that are you know connected under under the umbrella GCSAA uh, which is the national association so yeah we have we have local ones that provide local education and and networking events. Um, to again, kind of keep people connected and provide resources here locally. Um, so, so um, of the five here in Ohio, three of them just recently voted to merge into one. So, you know, what I had with the Ohio Superintendent Network, which was to kind of help keep these guys all connected and and up to date with what's going on, is is basically going away um, because these three chapters are coming together. That's really that chapter one new Ohio chapter is basically taking the place of, of Ohio superintendent network, if that okay. makes sense. So there was so, no so, state level in, there was no umbrella state, really just superintendent specific organization between the national and the five local chapters. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Each five, all five operated independently. Um, you know, an Ohio superintendent network was never an, an official chapter there were no membership dues it was just basically a website that i used to to guide people to to kind of keep people up to date what's going on and gave me an excuse to travel the state and take my camera and see awesome golf courses uh, um but uh but with you know again with these three chapters coming together um they're going to become the ohio chapter and so the need for for the ohio superintendent network is kind of going away um, so what I'm doing is I'm just dropping the Ohio and, and now I'm going national with the superintendent network. Um, and I'm just going to kind of travel around and tell stories of superintendents across the country. So I'm going to um, go and travel for, for a week and I'll spend, you know, five, six days in a different part of the country and take all my cameras and drone and all that fun stuff and just go tell stories about superintendents and assistants and equipment managers and facilities, um, across the country. So, um, so, you know, my business is kind of, um, cut up into what I like to say is three buckets, you know, so I run my own management company and out of that, I'll run the, you know, the, the Ohio chapter, I'll run the superintendent network. And then I also do 
um, some some custom projects for for courses and and manufacturers, whatever. Um, so, you know, long game is to grow the superintendent network. Um, you know, going to be launching that in 2022 and, um, you know, just go out and, and use video as a way to communicate to, to people and, 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 you know, again, let, let these guys tell their own stories. And cause you know, each story is unique, you know, each, each story is unique each person is as unique as the facility that they manage, you know? And so being able to go out and, you know, talk about some of the obstacles that they've overcome along the way, how they got into the business and, you know, how they manage their team. Um, I, I get that all the time. You know, I, when I was running Ohio Turfgrass Foundation, we have one of the largest regional um, turf conferences in the country. And so we'd have, I can't even tell you how many education meetings I'd sat in trying to plan that show. But at the end of the day, it always boiled down to superintendents wanted to hear from other superintendents. They wanted to learn more about their projects. They wanted to learn more about what worked and what didn't. And so I'm taking that, I'm taking that background and, and, you know, that demand and, and got to give it to them. Um, and it's, you know, just with, with the digital age and, and the ability to, to spread information so easily and quickly, you know, via social media or, or, or the web and podcasts, um, you know, why not go out and start letting these guys tell their stories, put it in a hub and, and, and give guys access to, um, you know, what other people are doing all over the world. So, um, so that's what I'm gonna do. Let's well, I think it. it sounds, I think it sounds fantastic. Uh, it's, no, I going to- it's gonna be fun. I know that. Good. Uh, speaking of custom projects and, and every course is different. Tell me the story of Twisted Paul, because that is uh, if people speaking of social media, uh, <laughs> if people find Brian on uh, on Twitter, his header and I'll have links to all this in the, the show notes. Uh, there is a beautiful picture of Twisted Paul putting club. Tell me that story. Yeah, I, I love the game. Um, and I have, you know, I don't have a turf degree. So a lot of people think I do. Um, I don't, but I know enough to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, uh, in my first marriage, I built a, a putting green there and, um, you know, lost that in the divorce and, and just still had the itch. And so, you know, when second marriage rolled around and we got a house, I just kind of told my wife, like, look, I'm, I'm going to end up doing it, you know? So, <laughs> Um, so we were, we were here less than a year and I already kind of staked out where I was going to put it. And, um, yeah, so built a 1700 square foot bent grass putting green in the backyard, just, you know, something for something to do. I just, I, I I don't sit still. I I have a hard time sitting still. Like my wife could go lay out on the beach all day and, you know, just soak up the sun. Like after five minutes of me sitting in a lawn chair, like I just, I can't do it. So Mm-hmm. So it gives me something to do. Um, I end up working on it more than I actually use it to practice. Um, but it's, you know, it's just a great way for me to get out, relieve some stress. You know, it's, it's a, it's a great, um, it's a great landmark for, for the, for the neighborhood. And when we, we meet new people in the neighborhood, we just say we're the house of the putting green and they know, they know exactly where we live. Um, but uh, no, it's just, it's fun. The kids have a blast out there on it. Um, I have a blast out there on it. And, you know, we, I held a little fundraiser um, over Labor Day weekend, had just a bunch of people came over and had a, had a big putting contest and raised, I don't know, 700 bucks, 750 bucks for the We One Foundation. Nice. So it's just, 
yeah, it's, it's cool. It's just, it's just something fun to have. And, um, well, and, and cheers to whoever your graphics guy or girl is, because that's one of the great logos in golf. I don't, I'll put that yeah. up against anybody <laughs> as a dog well, lover, thanks, and yeah. a, a dog lover and a golf lover. That's one of the great combinations right there. Yeah, man. Dogs of turf. It's, they go hand in hand. So yeah, you know, and that's what I was trying to figure out a name for it. My dog's got this jacked up front paw and just as much time as he spends out there. I'm like, well, we've got to name it after the dog somehow. So, uh, just kind of fell into place. Oh, but yeah. That's funny. You know, I manage, I manage all these different brands and, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll throw some, some sort of, you know, uh, merchandise deal out there. And it's funny the, the twisted Paul stuff sells probably twice as much as any of the other brands that I have out there, which is crazy, but people yeah, love no, dogs, just, people love dogs right. and people wish they had a putting green. So that's uh, it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. It is a lot of fun. I, I have a great time with it. And um, I'm kind of shocked I don't get more, you know, just stragglers walking over to it and using it. But, uh, <laughs> well, it's a you know, civilized, civilized neighborhood. You must live in a, a nice neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Posh, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. I'll get you out of here on this one. Um, when things were were locking down and never, we didn't know if we we're going to be able to travel again, when where what course were you daydreaming about where did you want to go first chance you got um or is there one that is just always on that list where do you want to go play i have always said i've never played a bad golf course when i've had good company okay so when everything locked down and 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 we couldn't really do much i didn't really care where we played uh, you know there's there's I am, I am so fortunate to do what I do and have access to, you know, visit some of the greatest golf courses in the country. Um, for me, there's no one specific golf course I want to go to. I just want to be around good people and, and have a good time. So, you know, like, like I said, I've, I've yet to play a bad golf for a bad golf course when I've been with good friends and, uh, when things started to lock down, that's all I wanted to do was grab a six pack of beer and go out and play some golf with my buddies. Hey, thanks for stopping by for this episode of the blind shots podcast. I can't thank Brian enough for being so gracious with his time. The turf guys are heroes of the golf industry. They are the golf practitioners that are asked to do the most with the least in terms of resources, patience, and understanding. It's comforting to know that those guys have guys like Brian on their side. Remember to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for the show. Each time someone leaves a five-star rating and review for this podcast, a maintenance barn dog finally catches that rabbit in his or her dreams. Hope you enjoyed what you heard here today. If you didn't like what you heard, sorry about that. I can't do anything about it now. But I promise I will look into if it's a me problem or a you problem and report back. And I hope you will join me next time here on the Blind Shots Podcast. Until then, be safe, be smart, and enjoy the holidays this winter. And as always, when you have the choice, do decide to go for it and take dead aim. We let some group play through, and it had a guy that played for Woody Hayes. And it was interesting. Like, everybody kind of stood around in reverence. It's like, he played for Woody. And here, (laughs) here, people say, he played for Rupp. Like there's enough, yeah, right. there's enough guys from, from that era. And it's just the, the aura around them. The, the, it was interesting to see that same reverence for football players, these old broken down guys that can't move because 
know, they played football in the 60s. God bless oh, them. Yeah. 